Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough, coming to you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a cool program for you all today. I have no doubt you will learn, grow, and be inspired by today's show. Before we get into our main event, I want to thank you for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and subscribe. Your likes and follows help ensure you won't miss any of our new shows, and it makes the algorithm gods happy, which helps us. So thanks for that. Also, be sure to visit our website, notrealart.com. Sign up for our newsletter to keep your finger on the pulse of everything we're doing here at Not Real Art for artists and our lovers. A lot of great stuff there. On the website, you'll see you'll get uh, free educational videos. You can sign up for our artist grant for the chance to receive two thousand dollars. Can buy affordable original and contemporary art through our partnership with Sugar Press. And you can become a supporter through Patreon if you want. So be sure to check out our website today for all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've got Natalia Villanueva Linares with you today. Natalia is amazing. She is one of our 2021 Not Real Art Grant winners, and her energy is infectious. Talking to her, I mean, I feel like I could talk to her for days <laughs> in this this conversation is fantastic i just her energy is infectious her intelligence is powerful i'm just so grateful to be able to introduce her to you and her work to you natalia hails from peru and france and is now residing in chicago her story is amazing she's an installation artist a performance artist she specializes in space understanding as you will hear. So this conversation is great. I think you're going to enjoy it. And without further ado, let's get into this in here from our 2021 Not Real Art Grant winner, the one and only Natalia Villanueva Linares. <laughs> Natalia Villanueva Linares, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. Thank you so much, Scott, for having me. This is a real honor. It is all my honor. Congratulations on being one of our 2021 Not Real Art Grant for Artists recipients. You're amazing. We love you. 
following the process of selection has been a pleasure. And knowing that I was one of the six made it even better. <laughs> it was incredible. Thank you so much for having me and for this fantastic opportunity. Well, we are so honored to call you a family member now. You're part of the Not Real Art family, you're part of the, the community. And that's, you know, we really, we, you know, th- those aren't just words. We really feel that way. It's important to build a community of like-minded folks who share common values. And yes, we all have a passion for art and the power uh, and the importance that art plays in life. But just because you love art doesn't mean you share the same values. So I'm just so proud of you. I'm proud of our other winners. I mean, we've got six amazing winners this year. And for you in particular, take me through your experience with grants. How many grants have you applied for in the past? And what has your experience been like? I have been a very busy bee and taking time applying for residency programs and grants because writing, I care so much for writing and I want to do it so well, as, as good as I can. It takes a very long time. And I don't think I have applied to that many grants, nor even residency programs, because I was busy on a very big project for about a decade. We've been trying to restore an abandoned church in the city in the heart of Illinois named Peoria. I didn't have the time really to go to residency programs or much time also to apply for grants. So I did win a few grants while I was at my school in France because they appreciated my work when I presented in the museum of my school. As a, one of the, the students with, who was given the highest honors, we were 20. It wasn't only me, but they gave us grants. Then one of the biggest grants I got was a residency program at the School of the Art Institute for a whole semester that allowed me to be in Chicago for six months, full entire six months, and a whole experience that really changed my life. So we find you in Chicago now. How many years now have you been in Chicago? Less than a year. So you came for that and you've stayed is basically yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. As soon okay. as I finished my studies, very, very in love, I moved to the city of Peoria, Illinois, to try to restore an abandoned church. So we had a nonprofit. I created a magazine. I was also working as an international artist. I did a lot of things at the same time. Chicago now is a different, it's a new, a new beginning. Since it, during the pandemic, we moved here. So Really, it's not the Chicago you know. It's not the Chicago we know. It's it's a different form, like the whole world is living at this time. It's a new experience. We'll see how it plays out. Only one year. It has a different rhythm of life as it used to 10 years ago. <laughs> well, I happen to be from the Chicagoland area, and I know Peoria well. I've been to Peoria many times. Uh, of course, I know Chicago far better. Where about in the city of Chicago do you live? We live in Pilsen. And Pilsen, oh yeah, I've got lots of... <laughs> yes, I was, during the quarantine, I was in Peru. We had a very strict quarantine. They closed the airport. My husband had to move to Chicago while I was in Peru. So when I came here, I moved to Pilsen. I was looking for a place that was very community-based and, you know, closer also to work and or large spaces to have studios, right? And then you leave your home every day and everyone says hello and everyone speaks Spanish. So it's... A dream. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Now, Chicago is a really special city. I, I love it. Don't get me started because, you know, I will <laughs> I will dominate the conversation about how much I love that city. But tell me about this church in Peoria. Clearly, it's, you know, 10 years. This indicates a labor of love. Uh, obviously, a big project, complicated project, expensive project. Take us back to the beginning and tell us about this important project. Yes. On a wild night in Paris, I met Earl Power Murphy, <laughs> who was a student at a university at Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois. 
and my partner, my husband, and uh, he at the time used to create parties, inviting many people just to explore and feel music. He would create parties in a home with different floors and different types of music. At the time, he knew me and I made very monumental or large installations. So he said, I saw my home is too small now for the events I want to create. I walked around the area and I saw this abandoned church. Would you like to buy it with me? And I was finishing my studies in Paris in my last year. And a few weeks before I, I passed my diploma, my last exam, I came to the U.S. and he proposed and we got married. I went back to France to finish my studies and a few more shows. And I came back to the U.S. to try to restore this church. At the beginning, we thought it was going to be not necessarily easy, but it, it made sense for us, for our personalities and our goals in life, right? Not, and our, just the projects we were working on. But we really realized that it was a very massive endeavor in time. The building really needed a lot of love and parentheses money and a, a massive financial support. So we decided to create a nonprofit. So in time, it would become a cultural center. When I moved, the idea of contemporary art or even installation, that was my speciality, wasn't even in the community's state of, you know, words, minds or approach to art. So it was also working with the community to connect with the arts, to, to share new forms of art that a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people had never seen before. So my organization, I curated a group of very young, creative-minded people with exceptional creativity, but skills also that they were eager to share. They believed in this project as much as we did, and they pushed it. We created very innovative forms of art that the city had never seen and because of my international connections, I tried to connect the building with artists in different countries. We even had a, a representative who created our organization's headquarters in France and presented our organization and the magazine we created later on in Kinshasa, Congo. So, and then we made the same presentation in Lima, Peru. And the idea was to connect in some way, bring in this building in the heart of Illinois many different cultural approaches of art with people, hopefully residents who will come from many different countries and stay for a little while. You know, when you go into a city that you have never heard before and stay for a little while, you don't know if you'll come back, right, ever again, but you will remember that forever. So that was in some way the way that I would enchant people to connect with this project. I'm like, we are going to stay in these artists' minds and history forever. Let's bring them all. <laughs> so it's pretty beautiful. We did... Small nomadic artistic experiences, snacks in con shipping containers. At the beginning, I was like, let's use just abandoned spaces that no one uses in streets that people go through, but never things to stop. So we would knock on the door of owners. Can we use your space? We'll paint. We'll clean. We'll do everything for you. Just leave it up to us to make something inside. And how many days? And we're like, we need it for one night. We can clean it in three days. Oh, great. It's free then. So we would do that. Two weeks later, they would always end up renting the space because people would see the potential, right, of the space, how clean it could be, how beautiful it could be. So I feel that the organization, not through art, really brought to the community a lot of opportunities and to the, and the people being a part of the organization. We did monumental installations on the church. But a feasibility study is very costly. And this is a group of full-time working artists not necessarily working in art, full-time working in their own jobs to be able to do art, including myself. And 
this is a real the word you use the words you use were perfect labor of love so it's a lot of time very different branches art the, restoring the church making an art magazine it's a lot and a feasibility study also showed us that it would be more than 2.5 million dollars to bring it back to life not even to i just say it like this always not even buying furniture or speakers right to be able to inhabit the space thankfully our organization is not the owner of the building anymore. And there is a person who has decided to restore the building this summer and they will bring it up to life because they have the means and they can and they're believing in the city and they're investing in their city. And this person has decided to bring it to its full beauty in a few months and to do the job that we couldn't do in 10 years because they have the means, but also be- he has the means, but also because he cares to see his city grow as we did for 10 years too. There's part of me that feels like there's a future TED talk in the making here. (laughs) I would love to. It would be a dream. (laughs) Also, another one. Check. (laughs) This gentleman who's owning the church and now funding the revitalization, that must have been a real gift of a meeting, you know, to meet somebody that shares, again, similar values, similar vision. How did you connect? Talk about that magic moment. I wish it would have been as beautiful as you describe it. (laughs) (laughs) I try to put a positive spin, but... (laughs) We have not met yet. We have not met. Our organization, it was in August of last year, that our organization wasn't the owner of the building anymore. And it was purchased by this investor named Kim Blinkenstaff only maybe a month ago. So we haven't met. It has been a whole kind of almost a year, we're close to a year for us to be, oh, we need to let it go, saying goodbyes, having a gathering to say goodbye with candlelight night. It was really difficult. A lot of people who have been generations of members of my organization came 10 years of, you know, it's so funny. It's 10 years, but you have people who have participated for two years, for five years, for 10 years, for six years. Everyone was there, photographers, designers, art directors, artists all forms of art or just people who believed, you know, who came to pick up bricks with us, to clean, to use masks in the dust, in the darkness of the basement. So it was a very diverse approach to the project. The project had so many branches, which is excellent, but you also need the means to make it keep growing and keep growing, right? And we didn't have a lifetime, you know, to bring that abundant amount of financial love together to make it work. So thankfully, this person has arrived only maybe a few months ago, and it has purchased the building about a month ago. And now we're waiting to see officially how is it going to come to life in the future and what is it going to happen to it in the future? Because we were looking to make an international cultural center with a residency program. So we'll see what are they looking to do in the future with it. So Natalia, in your bio, it says that you specialize in space understanding. Yes, I do. Help us understand (laughs) what space understanding is. I think that for me, space, it's not a place. Uh, Space is the place, but also the culture, the people, the audience, the country it is located in, the city, its history. Most of my work, when I present it, it doesn't only reflect how my idea can occupy a whole room, or a whole space, it also takes in consideration where it's happening, 
who is coming, how are we going to nourish each other? How is the work going to nourish potentially the person who comes in and takes the time to look at it? And how the audience can nourish, right, also the implication, the cultural implication of the work. So space to me, the understanding of space for me is how a work can be welcoming, inviting, but also is looking to be, to learn also from those who approach it. It has this very animistic perspective of what my spirit is looking forward to those moments of interaction when the work is done and this is it. We can open the doors. <laughs> it can be given because I already enjoyed it. But also who's coming? Is it that necessary? Is it as vital as it is for me? You know, it's because something that can heal you might not be the medicine for another person. So how do you take in consideration where the work is made? That is what space is to me. I'm not talking only about my work. It's something that I also look forward to discovering other artists, right? Like when I see other artists' works, I look at all the perspectives, you know, it's like, and also the origin, right? The origin of the work, but also the elements, you know, the origin of every element that made something happen. You know, listening to, to you explain that, I'm reminded of how in Taoism and the Tao Te Ching, and I forget the exact verse or where it was, but the the but in the Tao they talk in the Tao Te Ching, they talk about how it's the space and the bowl. You know, if there's a bowl and the empty space is what makes the bowl valuable, right? That reminds me of what you're saying. You know, the space has all the potential in the world, right? What you're saying is very powerful because it is what we don't see, right? It is what you don't see when you look at it work, what it makes you feel. Well, we were talking a moment ago about the feeling, the sensation, what the person is not saying might be what could be the, the, the most precious thing to listen to, right? Tell me or show me what I can see because it might be what I'm missing from the picture. So that the space, right? The, yes, the yes, part of yes, it. yes, yes. Yes, well, and arguably, I don't know if you've ever been a Burning Man or not, but Burning Man is a great example of this. It would be a dream. Oh, again, see, again, I'm making my, my checklist of dreams with you. <laughs> it would be incredible. That is something that I, I am looking forward to navigate, you know, dive in, navigate and discover because it's a culture and tiny little pieces of, and every single group of person have also a form of cultivating their experience. So yeah, I think that I would spend my time investigating, you know. <laughs> well, and what's also interesting when you think about how somebody experiences the space and or a space and how their perception of it might be impacted in terms of what it took to access the space, right? So is it a rite of passage or not? Was it easy to get to the space or was it a, a challenge to get to the space? And did you know if, you know, ahead of time, okay, so this is going to be a challenge, but I choose to go anyway. Maybe if you didn't know there's a challenge, maybe and you discover that it's a challenge, but you get there, then maybe there's some surprise and some reward and some gratification in that. Maybe there's frustration. Maybe there's a disappointment in that. But one of the interesting things about an, a, a space like Burning Man is that it is so difficult right, to access. It is so challenging to get there that even getting to the space is kind of this rite of passage that allows you to appreciate the space that much more. 
when you arrive or when you get there, you know? And so I wonder to what extent, like when you create installations and you think about how people travel there, get there, access the space, to what extent does that inform your work or inspire you? And, you know, to what extent do you think about the pathways into the space? In the way that you're describing it a moment ago, I like the word pilgrimage, pilgrimaging to make something happen. Yes, yes. There is not necessarily something always hidden, but there is a form of secrecy in a lot of things that I do, where you can see something that is extremely colorful and monumental and seems very generous, but there might be something inside of it that is telling a story that if you take the time to stay a little longer, you can unveil. So it's through through effort, my own effort, my physical effort, and using very simple materials, very daily things that you grew up with, you saw all your life, or are part of your kitchen, your living room, the streets, anywhere. The balance between effort and simplicity are, for me, it's almost like a secret sauce. They're part of the way that I make things, and that is how most of the time, not always, a viewer or a person who takes the time to to see makes them stay some a little longer. And this little longer might want them to themselves enter in this pilgrimage of, so why, how, why is this working with me? Why is this not working with me too? That's something that is very, that I appreciate very much when a person takes the time to tell you why not. Not just not, just why not. And it's fantastic. It's not like it happens all the time, <laughs> but it's something that I appreciate because you can also decide what type of art forms work with you. And that's something that nourish, nourishes my makings when I see when you accept that there is diverse approaches to any work, like in the same way as I can go to a museum and not necessarily know much of everything or even it doesn't awaken my sensitivity all the time. But some of the works, there is a detail inside of this that does work with me. It just unveils the, it shows the uniqueness of each person. I like that. I like seeing how the uniqueness of each person can be touched by a same work. By work, I'm not talking about the piece. I'm talking about the effort and the simplicity of materials. How can that really affect you? Does that put all of us in a common field? It's like we have the opportunity to be enchanted by this moment. Are we going to let it? do that to us or not, right? It's a decision that we make. And I think that effort, when you repeat a lot of, you cut many times, you repeat a lot, effort is vital to me. But in the end, it's something that I have seen people who didn't seem to have any reason to be in the gallery, didn't want to be in that museum, didn't feel like being around art that day, walking by and then coming back again because, wait, this is calling me. I appreciate very much seeing that. When I see a person who is called by the simplicity of the material or the work. You know, there seems to be a lot of interest in immersive experiences these days, you know, in in sort of commercial endeavors, right? So whether it's the much beloved and loathed Museum of Ice Cream that happened several years ago, or perhaps on the other side of things, Meow Wolf, which is, you know, an incredible collective and endeavor. You know, of course, we've mentioned Burning Man. But then, you know, then you have, uh, you know, I saw one. Where was I? I was the I was uh, traveling 
somewhere the other day and here in LA and there was yet another kind of immersive art exhibit that really is it's a selfie machine right it's they want people to go in and take selfies and post what say you as a bona fide specialist in space understanding and installation artists and performance artists, what say you about this sort of commercial explosion and in, in interest in these immersive art experiences that are as amazing as Meow Wolf and as kind of ridiculous as, as the Museum of Ice Cream? That is something that is pretty powerful at this time because it's something that is going to be in some way a relic of our time, right? That's going to be part of our time. What is going to define our time? Overproduction is part of my work. The overproduction has been there since the beginning because of these excessive amounts of things that I have seen since I'm a child or that I didn't have access to when I was a child and financially we couldn't afford these excessive amounts of anything. Not anything, but, you know, just going to a store and seeing a whole tower, a, a big, massive, incredible tower of tuna cans when I'm a child. I mean, like, who's going to eat all that? Like, we could be feeding so many villages with this, right? Or I have seen documentaries of people who came back from, I cannot remember their names because it's a few persons who came back from working in different countries in the world and couldn't go inside of supermarket. Not even mini, no super. Because they couldn't believe how much food was stored and not given to those who really, people who might need it around the world, right? So I think that in that lack of accessibility of excessive amounts, my work does highlight overproduction, does use overproduction. I like when overproduction in some way can bring, I'm going to use this word that seems a bit intense maybe, but kind of a celestial feel, something that can take us to a more, talking more about the generosity of a material. It is so simple, but it can overflow a space with generosity. Something that can maybe touch us in the most humane, right in the middle, you know, how we can be so generous, taking the time of just looking at something for a little longer. A, A room can mirror our own generosity. So I think there is a difference between seeing something that is attractive, exciting, and reflects our adventurous spirits and the ones that we accept for the room to contaminate us with its beauty, right? The beauty, like, not of the work, but of ourselves. Like, if I took the time to let this work envelop me, it reflects that I am capable of seeing or finding the secrecy, the secrecy of a moment, right? It's a, it's a different... I do, I do use overproduction, but in a way that... It can remind us, you know, that there is so much simplicity in being just generous or giving, given, like a material being given. I see a lot of materials almost as in a very animistic manner where because they have a lot of history or they mean so much to a specific culture, they are they're overflowing of generosity. So how does the artwork can reflect that generosity, right? And in a very overproductive manner. (laughs) So it does use this very, this strong characteristic of our time, but it is meant for humans to feel more humane of each other or art, right? I don't know if this is their intent or not. The one thing that I do take away from even 
expressions like the Museum of Ice Cream is that if we use this phrase a lot, this phrase democratizing art or the democratization of art, and if anything, perhaps a young child or a person will go there and get inspired artistically or creatively. And maybe they've never been to a museum, but now they're going to go to a museum. Or maybe they were wanting to be an artist or create something, but they were intimidated and unsure and insecure. And then they go to one of these and they become inspired and motivated. For those of us who might have a more refined perspective of what art might be, we can be sometimes a little bit judgy, right? When it comes to when it comes to some of these other executions, but at the end of the day, if it inspires people, makes people happy, where's the harm in that? That's a beautiful thing. If it awakens your curiosity, it's doing its job, right? If it shakes you in some way, it doesn't have to be always good. If it shakes you in some way, it's doing the job. And even the persons who can have, I try since a few years to not have that, I try really hard <laughs> to not have a judgmental necessary perspective on those because there is an audience who needs it. There is an audience in the way that you're describing it. It is true. It's not only the experience that they will, it's on top of being the experience that they will have and might awaken something new in themselves. I feel that there is a fast pace, a way of seeing art that is evolving that will function with some, and that does function with some. It is the way that they connect to art for some. I don't find that need, but I know many friends who would travel across the country to get there and experience that. So I can see as long as it's something that in some way triggers sparkles, not necessarily for me, but thinking that we are so different, some from others. We have different sensible needs. Some want it fast, like a fast food, like, it needs to happen fast. I can see it and get it. And if I don't see it and get it, it doesn't work with me. I have to think too much. It doesn't work. Those who, if I don't have to think for five hours, this is not doing it for me. So if it sparkles, it's working. <laughs> Does the Chicago artist, the Hebrew Brantley, do you know that name? Do you know him? Not yet. Not Tell yet. Okay. <laughs> I'll email you or send you or just Google him. But his uh, name is Hebrew Brantley. He's a uh, Chicago, born and bred uh, Chicagoan. You've got his, I don't know if he got his start in street art or what, but he had an immersive art experience there in Chicago in 2019. I'm forgetting now what it was called. Uh, I attended it. I did go. It was a wonderful experience. He clearly put a lot of intelligence into it. And it was a celebration of growing up in Chicago, growing up in on the South Side. And he has these amazing characters, Fly Boy and Fly Girl, that are part of this experience. So anyway. Yes, I will make my research as soon as we're done the conversation. But I do think that I have, I don't know if I went to the show, but everything you're saying does remind me of a show that I have seen on the internet. Sure. <laughs> Tell me about Soul Solutions. Or solutions, solutions. I mean, I love the name. I didn't have time, Sat, forgive me. I didn't have time to study it, but I just love the name and I was so captivated by the name. Please tell me about solutions. It has happened often to me when people have come to my studio, seen me work, or when I finish a work, that people ask me a question that is, how do you do it? And it is sometimes they can see me, so it's not, there isn't a secret of the process necessarily, but it's more, how can I translate to someone something that means absolutely everything to me? You know, an explosion of the everything at all times. 
solutions started first as very personal performances. So uh, the word solution starts as potions that I was trying to create, mixing objects that were very important to me. They had a very metaphorical, you know, like spirit to all of them. And I, I would mix them. In the process of making them, it would take me two hours, two hours and a half to make them. I wanted to cure things that were impossible to heal, like distance or time. So I, I would mix these objects together and would create these potions that were not to drink either, because if you drink, I don't think anything good would happen. But in the process of making them, there were moments where there was these very luminous gestures that to me were part of the process of making these potions. But some of them were, I was like, wow, this is so beautiful. I cannot keep it to myself. I absolutely have to give it to someone else. And it started by inviting other people to, I would give this the same object that I had transformed during this solution or potion makings to heal what is incurable. I was like, I'm going to, I think that I need to share this gesture, this action that I've done that I couldn't believe how beautiful it was. So I invited first people that I would know, that I knew to thank them for everything they brought in my life, you know, like 10 people. And I would, these are the materials. And I want to give this moment to all of you. This is a performance where you're going to, I would give them one instruction to transform this object. And they did it. And during the performance, it was so incredible how I gave the same instruction. But in the end, when we would all approach, all the audience would approach the objects, the results were completely different. So then I was like, and if I do it again somewhere else, inviting anyone? Okay, let's, let's try. The same, same object somewhere else. So I was invited to LA, actually. <laughs> She's a, an art curator named Erin Cravey. She invited me to a gallery at the time. She had a gallery. And she was like, come here and make the same performance you did in Paris. Make it in my gallery. So I went. I had a solo show at the time in her gallery. And it was in Abbot Kinney. For a period of time, she had a, a gallery there. And I made the second session of this performance. And the same thing. I gave the same instruction. The participants don't know what the performance is going to be. I give the instruction and objects for them to transform. The same instruction is given every time. And it can happen in, every, in any country. I even did them simultaneously in different countries at the same time. So they could be connected through the same gesture. But the results are always very different. So in time, I've discovered that solutions has become a library of gestures, a library that I keep these transformed objects during the performances made by participants located in different countries. So it's a nomadic project where I also invite filmmakers and photographers to leave this experience with me. But they're also performers because or they don't know me or it's the first time they're, perform they're filming in that room or making photographs in that room. So the whole project is a multidisciplinary project with photography, films of these performances, the performances themselves, the objects that are actually made by different participants. So it's as if the artwork is every single step and every single part of this project. The artworks, the performance when you're there, because they are transforming objects, the sound takes over the whole space. People have sent me sound. I think I, I, I recorded everything. So I was like, now recording is going to be another level. So even the audience they have inspired more layers to this project. So in the future, I would like this to be a platform where all these objects are there. I interview every single participant and they can tell us 
what happened to them then, you know, and they can be the owners of the object they transform, right? So it's a very long-term relationship with this project that I want, I wanted to take different forms in the future, but I'm mostly working on creating in the future a platform with it. So you can see every object that has been done and it can happen anywhere at any time. The warehouse that you store your art in must be huge. <laughs> it is. My studio, yes, 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 it is. That's the thing. Because of the type of life that we're going to, right? The virtual, the pandemic is has kicked us inside of a virtual system of communicating and exchanging. It's almost as if these projects now need absolutely to be in a platform because it would be at this time the best way for them to, for people to be able to approach them more than going to the gallery to see them. Yeah, I have a lot of objects that I find very important, you know, to a lot of my installations are usually very large. Not all can fit in my backpack, but I am transforming them into small bricks. You know, all the material is becoming small bricks that they can, I'm working on this continuity, right, of the process or the project. The project isn't only the installation you see. They're now mirroring my library of gestures. I film, I photograph, they take a different form. So I'm obeying now a process that I have been working on for other people to participate in and feel these moments. And now it is integrated to my practice. So you never sleep. <laughs> I I am a very produ- excessively productive person. Yeah, this is, yeah, I'm a very productive person. Not, not in the sense of I produce a lot of things. It's more that I, yeah, you just need to obey your energy. Everybody has a different form of energy. And I hear many people, oh, there's no need to be so productive. It's like, but if you have more ideas, keep going, right? So how do you take care of yourself? How do you respect your body? How do you self-care? I walk to my studio from my home, back and forth. I have a stationary bike because of pandemic, mostly, you know. Since the beginning of the year, I have been dancing for an hour, watching, you know, aerobics online. (laughs) Or when I have music in my studio, I dance too. But it's mostly the type of, I think that the intake of colors, a very vegetable-y and fruity life can really change your life completely. Really can really give you all the... Exactly that, <laughs> that you need, right? The rhythm. Yes. Well, you know, I ask because it is one of my concerns for artists. I mean, I know so many artists who struggle with self-care and maybe they're, maybe they suffer from mental health issues. Maybe they make it worse by not taking care of themselves or what have you. And it's interesting because I feel like on one hand, uh, culturally in this country and maybe globally, but, but there is, of course, America is notoriously, you know, stressed and overweight, but compared to other countries, maybe. But there is this sort of a renaissance of self-care and, and health and fitness and wellness. And I hope that that comes into the community of artists and artists take self-care more seriously because you can't make work if, you're, if you can't be healthy. Yes. I think that bringing the question to the table in an interview is the most beautiful and generous form that you can really integrate it or normalize it, right? In a way of communicating with people who... Actually, art becomes a way of coloring, you know, certain parts of the self, the life, the past that need to come out. For me, the pandemic has been because I had such a sociable and directed to others, to a community, to a project life before the pandemic, outside of the economical situation and the job situation and the the intense things that we have all been going through. 
the practice and the solitude has been very healing for me because I had been so outgoing before that this has been almost like an obligatory focus on one thing at a time, one branch of the tree or the trunk, right? I'm not in the branches anymore. I'm in the trunk and hanging on very tight. And that's why I can pour all my time and my everything when I'm in my studio, very focused. And I think that nutrition is, is really vital. Nutrition is something that affects. I didn't know it was affecting me personally so much. And my whole day changes completely depending on my intake of any types of food. So the more color they have, the better day you can have, you know. And I spend my at least for 30 minutes cutting, chopping little things in many colors so it can be appetizing and exciting, right? Because sometimes you don't necessarily, you don't, you don't necessarily get excited about that, but you need to know what are the needs, like feels that you're looking for, right? There are certain foods that we say no to because we don't like the feels of them. So how do you make these colorful intakes to be as exciting? It's true. We are what we eat. The fuel, the quality of the fuel that we put into our bodies, our automobiles, yes. <laughs> it makes a difference. It absolutely makes a difference. Take us back to Natalia as a young girl. Were you making things as a young girl? Uh, at, at what point uh, did you realize you were an artist and you were born to make art? I was a gatherer of people, which now in time, it is happening again with certain projects that I work on. But yeah, I was a gatherer. First time I was taken, just one example, first time I was taken to a kindergarten. The story has been told to me many times especially by my grandparents. They took me to my first date, my grandma and my grandpa on my father's side. This is in Peru. I'm two years old. I really have lived exactly the same amount of years in both countries with back and forths. Many. I was born in France and then I was in Peru at my nine months. So I was two and a half. So at two years old, I was in Peru. <laughs> and, or two and, yeah, two and a half. And they take me to this room where all the children are crying. And I look at my grandparents kind of surprised of what's going on. And I take all the, uh, come and see the kids and I take them all by the hand, put them around the table and make them sing a song named Los Pollitos. It's Baby Chicks. The Baby Chicks Say, that's the name of the song. And they're all singing and they forget they're crying. And my grandparents have told that story many times. I learned of that story only later on in my life. And I'm like, whoa, that is okay. So I had a very sociable connection to everything. I would draw, but people would tell me, I love it. And it didn't do it for me. The way that I would dress was obviously telling everybody and myself something. The way that I would dress, I think, was the, my palette, right? My palette of colors. My sensibility was through the palette of colors I would wear or the type of clothing I would wear every day. So it was obvious something was going on with that person. People would tell me, but I didn't have that connection to it. I would say... I was in, in South America at the time. I'm 15 years old. And I say, I want to go to the fine art school in Paris. I'm like, yeah, right. You want to be like Picasso, Leonardo da Vinci, right? And I was like, first in my head, I was like, those are men and they're all painters. So they tried to, to show me what painting was. A painter came to my home, a teacher of an art school. I met a teacher of an art school in Peru at the time. And he showed me the preparation of the canvas. This is how I teach my students the preparation of the canvas. I was under the spell of his preparation. 
And then he said, and now we can paint over it. And I'm like, no, like, why would give it to what? Give it to me. And I took it. And I was like, can I keep it? And he said, I prepared that to make a small painting, but you can keep it. And the time it took him to make it, the fascinating story, fascinating story that we never hear of how the canvas was made. I think that really spoke to me, but I realized it only later on. And it was only when I, I was, I was being 22 at the time. And I, yeah, I, I said, I'm going to try the fine art school. It wasn't because I felt that I was an artist. I just was like, there is something there that I know I need to find. And when I went inside, it was be, like being in heaven. I would cry of joy. I called my dad, I made it, crying. It was incredible. And I spent five years in heaven floating on a, on a cloud. And what I, I don't think I still consider myself an artist. Maybe till I came to Chicago. When I came to Chicago as my exchange program in my third year, people would ask me, are you a grad or an undergrad? And, and, and the critiques were, I had in France, they didn't teach us critique, exchanging, have a critical thinking of your work and other people's work. My teachers were fascinating. One of them is Stephanie Brooks. She's incredible. And she's an artist who really educated us on exchanging in a very simple manner. And I feel that it wasn't anymore about discovering my sensibility. It was that, oh, this is it. This is just, this is something that is flowing in and out of you all the time. In the way that you wake up in the morning, the colors you pick, the, the people you decide to spend time with, the people that you let sparkle your life, the form that your sensible, you know, or your, your feelings take in a work, in everything you are. It isn't something that you do. It is who you are. And yeah, I think it was in Chicago that I felt it. But before that, it was difficult. It was very difficult to, not before Chicago, just before being in my school. It was having to draw, having to paint. Those were the only forms of art that I grew up as, this is art. That is it. And if you don't have it, then you are ant. <laughs> it's like, okay. A preparatory school told me, we don't have a whole semester to teach you how to paint. So you can go and pick up stuff from this, you know, find stuff. I was like, excuse me, anything? Yeah, fine stuff. And that's when they gave me, they gave me the permission for anything and everything. But the feeling, that feeling of feeling what art was and how does it move inside of you, it happened only when I came here. Before that, it was more like, I am, I am exploring and seeing what it is. Why do I have this need? Why do I have to, the need to be in this school? Why is this so important to me and really makes sense? Tell me about your mom and dad. My, my parents are very hardworking people. They're pretty fantastic, passionate humans. When they met in Peru, my father instantly fell in love with my mom. He was 13. She was 14. So he was very short at the time. <laughs> she was taller. Older woman. Yeah. Yeah. Just a few months at the time, right? He looks at her and says, I am going to marry you. She looks at him, get out of here. This is the first encounter. They see each other a few years later. And my mom is like, ooh, cool. They realize that both of their moms are French or are originally from France. And that's when my dad tells her, let's go to France. Let's get our citizenship and go and travel and move to France. And they move there. They're really hardworking people. My mom has been a French teacher most of her life because she lost her father when she was 18. So she had to work and she knew French because of being in a French school. And uh, she was a, she's a hardworking person. She was also a knitter and a seamstress. So working as a teacher but as soon as he finished she would find uh, projects or create opportunities for her to be able to knit or to be not necessarily a seamstress at the time but I grew up with the seamstress part of her when I was a child 
And then when I was more, not adult, but teenager, she was a knitter. It's a person who had several gifts and would give them all in a day and would take me and my sister everywhere, wherever she had to go to continue on her purpose. Something that would make her full, right? Or fuller. And my father is a person who's passionate about his work. He's a, he works on programming. He's an architect of programs and data. And he's passionate about his work. And no family is perfect. I'm just telling you the best part of it. <laughs> this is the best part. The one that they gave me. The one that is in my work. My mom is my colors. She's my palette. And my father and my palette and my structure and most of my objects. And my father is my drive. That's who they are. There's something about this that makes me feel as though you are, and I could be wrong, but I, I, I feel as though you are sort of a perfect mix of your, both your parents. Like, I, I'm guessing you're not more like your mom than your dad or more like your dad than your mom. I get the sense that you are a, a beautiful blend of both. I hope so. <laughs> a lot of people say that I look like my mother more than I look like my father physically to both sisters. But it is so vital. It was so vital to me to discover. My father came here not too long ago. And I looked at him and said, this is it. You're my drive. This is it. And that and my drive is what, up until now in my life, has moved a few mountains. They're both hardworking. But yeah, when discovering, you know, that element of the other person, because, you know, parents... Nobody's perfect. And we dislike a lot of things and we like a lot of them. But when you find that thing that gives intention, right, of who we are and what we bring to the table at all times, it's fantastic. Yeah. So he became my drive. It was there, there all the time, but it was revealed. And I was like, oh, and he was like, oh, that is fantastic. <laughs> a lot of my works are very much related to my mom, telling my mom's a lot of things that are related to my mom. I don't speak about that because works can have their own generous way of speaking to people, you know, but they have, they're massively inspired by my mother and mother's creativity and colors. I've been lucky enough to do a little bit of travel. I've been both in Peru and France. Where about in Peru are you from and where about in France have you lived? I'm so glad to hear you've been in too. Excellent. <laughs> a lot of people tell me they want to and I tell them not yet. You haven't been there yet. And I really like talking to people who have been in both lands. In Peru, Lima. And I have traveled in many different re regions of Peru. And my hope and dreams are to spend a lot of time in the Andes because it is incredible. <laughs> it, it is mind-blowing. I can feel you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I, can, I can see it. <laughs> and in France, I was born in the south of France. In Montpellier is the name of the city. And it's next to Marseille, very close to Spain too, <laughs> right in the middle. But the last 10 years when I was studying, we were in Paris at the Fine Arts School of Paris. Yeah, that was... At the time, my school was full with artists that are in Europe. I don't know, I'm a, a lot of... Not all the people that I have met up until now because I wasn't living in a big city like here where people know a lot about art at all levels and different forms. But a lot of legends of the art, modern and contemporary, in that school when I was a student. Now they're different legends as teachers, but the legends of my time were incredible. So I feel as if they have brought to me living in Paris and being with those teachers. Not necessarily, I can't, I can't make a parallel with the, the... It is the same thing I'm looking for when I go to the Andes. Something that takes you beyond what you could imagine life could mean. You know, it's like, wow, this is 
pretty incredible how lucky I am to experience these things, right? So they have both that superpower. You've been to the Andes. I have, yes. Yes, I had the wonderful opportunity in college, uh, 1995. We circumnavigated uh, Mount Azangadi en route to Coriti for the annual pilgrimage of the Quechua. Wait, were you there during the time? I was. I was there during Cori in Coriti during the pilgrimage. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. When the shaman go to the mountain top carrying the blocks of ice. It's a very dangerous pilgrimage. You know yeah. that, right? Yeah. Two oh, to yeah. three people yeah. die yearly. It's expected for two to three people to die. You knew yeah. that before going? In 2019? 1995. I was in Cusco in 2019, a few years back. I was having something to drink in the plaza, and it starts to be filled with humans and all forms of traditional clothing. I had never, it was one of the most beautiful moments of my life. It was all the communes that are presenting themselves to be blessed to go to the pilgrim, to start the pilgrimage. And you were there. <laughs> it was amazing. I had a, a friend of mine who, I forget what his connection was to, he was a physician, but he had a, some kind of connection to Peru and he would go quite a bit. And we were invited. He was putting this trip together. And so we were invited. We flew into Lima, of course, and we got to Cusco. We were in Cusco for a few days and then we headed out. It was a, we had horses and back, you know, we were packing. It was a packing, horse packing trip. We circumnavigated Mount Azangadi. We summited at about 7,000, I'm sorry, 17,500 feet before we came back down around. And I'll never forget coming down the mountain towards Coriti. Because looking down on the village, which, as you know, is just a very small village, it looked like ants. There were so many tens of thousands of people, Quechua, who were there that from the mountaintop, it looked like ants that were. And then I realized, like, oh, my God, that's just people, you know. And then we go down there. Of course, we were the only white people there and we were the tallest people there and we stuck out and we said we stuck out, you know, like sore thumbs, but we were so grateful to be there. And it was such an incredible time. Then of course we, we were in country for about three weeks, I guess. And so we of course wow. made it to Machu Picchu and, and yes. as well. After, right. After that experience. Yes. After the experience. That's right. Oh my That's Lord. Right. We started with the hardest part. Let's do the hardest thing first, and then the others. Let's go celebrate in Machu oh, Picchu. <laughs> that is amazing. That was before Machu Picchu, as I understand it now. It's, it's quite built up. They have hotels. It's quite touristy. It's a completely different world, yes. I was in 98. For, my first time there was in 98, which was a few years after you were there. And my last experience in 2019, it's another world. I don't think I would even advise you to go there. Go somewhere else, <laughs> you know, because you've been there before. And I think it, in one of its most glorious forms, I would say. And even Coyuriti also. I don't think there are many people coming from other countries who do the Coyuriti pilgrimage. It's something that really, it is expected for people, a few persons to miss from the crowd. So it's a, it's a very difficult thing to do. It's, a, it's an accomplishment. Congratulations. It, well, I was 25. <laughs> yeah, Very good. Yeah, young and dumb, maybe a little drunk. <laughs> Wasn't everyone at the time? <laughs> I think it's a thing. Yeah. It's, it's very important. 
that's something that is very, I like that you talk about this. I was in awe with seeing these different, all the people who were presenting themselves, which were thousands of people. I don't know if it's the same amount of people that goes to the pilgrimage, but there were a, a massive amount of persons there. There, I think that when you touch these moments, right, that have these almost so sacred, where the belief is believing something is taking over everyone, right? There is a, a very strong connection to religion in South America and the one I know in Peru. And I think that it is something that I appreciate to see in other artists. And I have it that I look, that I connect to in my practice too, is to have a religious re relationship to your practice. You know, when it is, it has that colorful form. It doesn't have to be about colors because we all have different colors, right? So a very colorful forms of life. Your experience for me would be like, I was like, should I go? No, it is very difficult. It's a very, it's a, it's a massive accomplishment for a human who isn't part of that culture, right? To make it happen. And that is something that in a very respectful manner, as a person who is from Peru, not from Lima, I mean, I'm from the city of Lima, not from the whole country, I find a need to keep exploring many different regions, especially in the Andes. I have nothing against the rainforest. But I'm scared of spiders, you know. <laughs> just like, <laughs> right there's other things I'm scared of. But I think that it is vital for anyone who has the time to go to Peru, to go to the Andes, because it's Andes, a connection, you. right? To, yes, yeah. so, so powerful. So yes, it is magical place. And you know what also is magical, Natalia, is you and your art. And we are so grateful for you and your art. It's me. <laughs> I'm going to say it again, because I've told you that before when we, when we talked for the first time. It's funny, but I have been following the process of selection for the grant. And because you bring, you give it to us, you know, it isn't just something that the artists are looking to into because they want to know the result. It's a very welcoming process. And, and you make us be very engaged with the process. We can listen to you talk about the process. We can take the time to discover every jury member. You talk about them, you introduce them, like you make everyone meet. So when you talk about family later, you have been already working on it. For a, few, for a long time before, right? And the fewer who are selected, but uh, are which I'm very lucky to be inside of it, but it can be silly to say it now, but the day before when I was a finalist, I was like, wow, this is fantastic. I am applying again next year if I don't get it. Because I felt like I wanted to support the process and the project that, you, that Not Real Art has been given to artists. It's like, participating i feel i will participate as long as i can till i can get it but also because i want them to know that i applaud actually this process and yeah and again i'm going to bring in also something important i really appreciate how in some way revolutionary it is to call it the not real art because it does create a feeling a feeling that can be creating a questioning right like is this is this it is this true it's a very well-picked name, and the process of selection has been very... I would, I've been saying it, and I will continue to advise artists to apply, because it, I really appreciate how you welcome us in, in, in this making process and how it has been evolving the past years, right, also. Well, thank you for that, Natalia. That means a lot. We want to be a place that 
are where artists feel uh, at home. And we want to be a place where anyone, anybody and everyone feels welcome. We're not about exclusion. We're about inclusion. We're about transparency. We're communicators. Artists are communicators. And, and so I want everything we do here at Not Real Art to exude those kinds of values where we're communicating and we're, maybe we're over-communicating so that people understand where our heart is, where our mind is, that we are artist-centric. I say that very specifically because, you know, I think there are lots of organizations that are out there that are art-centric, object-centric. I don't know that there are enough organizations, or I believe that there, we need more organizations that are artist-centric, which is different. So it means a lot to me to hear you talk about the process and, and how you felt like the communication was good and the transparency was good because we work really hard to embody that and personify that and make that real because we don't want it to be just talk. We want it to be demonstrated in our choices and our actions every day. And also the fact that you called out the name, not real art, means a lot as well because again, very intentional, very intentional on our part. Artists get it immediately. I've talked to a lot of uh, folks in the art world, gallerists, curators, uh, dealers, collectors who don't get it. <laughs> they just <laughs> don't get it. And that's cool because you know what? We're not for them. You know, they're welcome. They're absolutely welcome. Yes, of course. But we're we're artist centric. You know, we're not collector centric. We're not gallery centric. We're not dealer centric. We're artist centric and all are welcome. And the name was intentional to communicate to artists that they would know that we're one of them and that we get them, we see them, and we know the struggle. Because that's what it's about, right? It's the struggle. How many artists do we know who were told their art wasn't legitimate? We're not here, as I like to say, we're not here to critique. There's enough critics out there. We're right. We're cheerleaders. We, we feel like artists need more cheerleaders, less critics, more cheerleaders. And we're here to be cheerleaders, not critics. And something that is also pretty beautiful about the grant, the Not Real Art grant, and also the, the whole system around it is that the person who we communicate with, the person who organizes most of these gatherings, and is the person we get to spend a moment to for an interview too. And it makes it very humane, right? Personable and approachable. And that is not something, you know, that it's also given in many other structures that I have participated or be a part of. There is also so many layers, right? And I like how this grant takes away all the layers. And, you know, it's like, here it is, arms are open, come this way if you want to, right? And I also think that the, the title creates inclusiveness, especially for those who, might not be interested in art and feel welcome because if it isn't, let me see, <laughs> you know, let me <laughs> yes. see for myself so I can decide if it is or isn't, right? I really like that approach because I care very much for those who care, who approach, who know, but also who do, those who do not care at all. It's like, how, how can your work yes. resonate yes. with yes. the majority yes. of humans on the world That's who right. are, in the world who are busy in different things or creativity is just not their thing, you know? Not necessarily the majority, but a, a vast amount of humans. And I find that when you create a name or a, a process that is very welcoming where anyone can take the time to sit and discover what has happened during all this process, just, just to know. You know, and the title has that 
kind of like I'm trying to find the word with my hand. It does work. <laughs> it's very attractive. It, you know, it awakens something. It moves and it shakes something inside. Well, thank you for that, because we hope that it does. We hope that it resonates and appeals to a lot of folks who might otherwise be turned off or intimidated yes. by the conventional art world, where maybe they don't feel like they're welcome or they don't know enough or they're not fancy enough or they're not rich enough or whatever. And what artists need really is are they need more people buying their arts, not fewer people, more people. And so if we can create a space whereby more people feel welcome, then maybe we'll sell more art and artists will make a better living. And the old saying, you know, a a high tide raises all boats. I mean, you know, like if we can do that. But, you know, what's so crazy is that you talk about these things about the grant in terms of the transparency. The fact that I'm here and and, and I'm on the emails and there's no barriers. You talk about the communication. It's amazing to me that. Well, first of all, I'm so grateful that our work is resonating, it's meaningful, and it's relevant. But the bar is so low. (laughs) I mean, you know what I mean? It really isn't that difficult because the bar is so low. It's unbelievable to me that so many grants don't communicate to their folks or have fees to enter or are a black box and don't do a good job of, of explaining their process or explaining the, the calculus by which they make their decisions. And, and so for us, I mean, it's, it, we can look great because the bar is so low. <laughs> we, just do, we just do the things that we would want to be done for us. You know, it's, it's sort of, you know, that old saying, it's one-on-one. It's not that hard. You give what you, can, what you would like to receive too. Yes, that is pretty fantastic. We can feel it. I, I, yes, you can feel it. I had an interview yesterday with Katie also, and I felt, I felt that it was pretty one-on-one, right? A very giving state of mind because we understand what it is to not... It, it feels as if you're talking with someone who understands what you're going through. We have never met before, but it's like, no, I get it. It's a sensation that is definitely transmitted. Thank you for that, Natalia. And thank you for being so generous with your time today. Thank you for being part of the Not Real Art family. Thank you for all that you do, your work, your love, your passion, your light. You are a wonderful human being. Your parents should be so proud. I know they are. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I'm excited for this ride. It's a beautiful adventure. I'm very touched to be one of the selected artists for it and discovering also the work of the other five artists, which is pretty phenomenal too. It's it, it's a we found each other online. Yes, yes, it it's beautiful. a great group and 827 applications. It was challenging to say the least, but we're so proud of our six recipients. We're so we're proud of all 827 a- applicants. And the fact that we that we found our six recipients is a beautiful thing. This time, because because I got to share some a very good news on my social media, kind of like hey. I am a recipient of this grant. My second paragraph, per se, was an applause, just my hands applauding to all those who were not selected this year because I know what it is. We all know what it is to give the time to write about your work. What I appreciate of the grant is that I felt very much kind of an advocate of, but do it again, (laughs) you know? (laughs) It's so open that you should do it again. It is the first time, maybe, or the second time, maybe, but continue because it's there and it's not going anywhere. It feels as, as if your efforts were unstoppable. And I, I am eager to share that with others. <laughs> 
Natalia, before we go, please tell our listeners where they can find you on social. Tell our listeners about your current upcoming projects that you're working on and what people should be uh, looking forward to. Oh, thank you. For my social media, I use mostly Instagram for my work and it's at Nati, N-A-T-I dot work, the word work. At this time, I'm preparing my first solo show with an art gallery named Galeria Wu in Lima, in Peru. It starts the first week of August. There is a contemporary art magazine in Paris named Artais, in French is Artais, Artais Contemporain. My work is in the cover of that magazine. And there is an article, a writer named Alice Truc wrote an incredible article of my work. It's in French for those who adore French or know French. And I'm participating in a show in the countryside in France at the beginning of August also. And I don't know if you if you know this gallery. It's a PXP Contemporary. is an online art gallery. And I have been selected for a show that they have online. I'm selling photographs of three of my installations. All she makes, the organization, all she makes, I'm going to be in the second issue. That's in English. That's what I have going on at this time. <laughs> I'm going to stop because I can continue. <laughs> it's not that there is so much. It's just that, you know. I think that's a lot, Natalia. <laughs> I think I, now we know why you're not sleeping, but we are thrilled. We can't wait to see how all this plays out. I'm going to be in Chicago the second week of August. Are you going to be in Peru or are you going to be in Chicago during that time? I'm going to be in Chicago. Everything is made in distance at this time. Right, I am right. Okay. to go to South America. I promise you that I will do my damnedest to come through for a studio visit. I just want to give you a big hug and that see your work. That would be so beautiful. The, yeah. this way, I'm not showing you anything right now because you can see it. But it's full with colors and I am eager for you to see the two projects I'm working on. They're not small. I promise you that. <laughs> if you're doing it, I know it's not small. Go big or go home, I think might be your motto. But Natalia, thank you so much. Be well, my friend. And thank you for all you do. See you very soon. Again, thank you so much for this opportunity. It's fantastic. Merci. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld.